We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. After a delicious 30-3 victory over Iowa, we've got a great show on tap for you today. We're going to talk about the Iowa game. We're going to discuss some of the coaching moves, discuss the season in totality. Do we think it was successful? Do we think it was unsuccessful? And we're also going to discuss what we would like to see have done in the offseason to further improve the Gators, as well as give you our overall opinion as to whether or not after two years we feel like things are trending in the right direction. Lastly, we will discuss with you the playoff scenario, some of the best bowl games, wrap up what the SEC did in the bowl games, and then give you our prediction for the national championship. But first things first, Alan, what were your overall thoughts and feelings about that 30-3 win over Iowa? I enjoyed it thoroughly. I mean, I thought it was a surprising performance in some ways, other ways not so surprising in terms of, you know, our corners playing well and things like that. Got some juice from the offense. I, You know, I was expecting to feel nothing either way, but I actually enjoyed that game, and it was nice to see the Gators play well and beat up on a, a team they probably should have beaten up considering the state I was in coming into that game. What about you? Yeah, I felt great. I predicted us to lose. I didn't think we were going to put as much into it, and I know that it seemed that the ESPN announcers agreed with me because one of their keys to the game was play with regular season effort. <laughs> and yes. so I chuckled that and thought, I love it. I love that these guys understand bowl games. And I thought McElwain did an incredible job getting the guys to play with an extremely high level of effort. They wanted to win this game. And as we as we basically previewed the week before, we are a vastly superior team talent-wise to Iowa. And we play a similar style. When that happens, you should win. And so that's why it was kind of crazy for me to even pick the loss. But... 
that goes to show where I thought the program was momentum wise with regards to how much we cared about this game. And I was wrong and happily wrong. And so for that, I feel better about it than I would have. It still doesn't really mean anything, but it does mean that McElwain was able to get his players up for a game that really meant nothing for us, was not any sort of reward we were excited about. With a quarterback that won't be here, uh, a whole host of new faces that played on defense, which I think was helpful, and a lot of guys on offense that were returning as well. So all in all, positive feelings. It was nice to get a big bowl win. Let's keep in mind, though, that Iowa has a track record in the past four years of getting obliterated in every bowl game they play in. So Yeah, you don't want to get too high. And that's the thing. People, there's always a bump for certain teams. Expect Tennessee and USC to have like huge momentum coming off their bowl wins, kind of a thing. You know, so you can get too high or too low. But the narrative coming into this game was that in some corners of the media and fan base, this was, you know, a quote unquote must win for the program, which I kind of laughed at. I was like, must win. What happens if we lose? Like nothing, you know, but kind of it reversed that trend I guess for some people of ending the season just tanking because last year we lost all of our games to close the season lost the seed championship got obliterated in a bowl game sour note that's really what a bowl game is kind of comes down to is what kind of taste do you have in your mouth in the offseason for some programs that it's a maybe minor thing for us maybe it felt more significant for parts of our fan base so in that sense it's a little more brightness around the program heading into an offseason where there's still a lot of question marks. So I guess for the program, that was nice. Yeah, you, you nailed it. I think as a fan, it lingers a lot more. As a player on a team, the next year is so new and different that when you get together and start practicing in the spring, it doesn't feel the same. There's no carryover from that bowl game. But to the fans, there is, because the fans were here. We're consistent. We're not leaving the program. And so like you said, it does feel nicer to end your note on that uptick. That the up the the downtick of getting smashed by Michigan last year was, was not good. Was not a good one. So so we do have a little bit of fan momentum, which McElwain certainly could have used. And I yes. think that's why he really knew he needed to win this game. It wasn't about the players, it wasn't about recruiting. He knew it would be nice to have the fans moving into year three, a very important year for him, feeling better about what went on, even if it was beating up on a, an Iowa team that that look came in hot. They had dispatched some teams. Now, we've learned that the Big Ten was vastly, vastly overrated, which Indeed. I personally enjoy and have <laughs> yes. always enjoyed since going back to our national championship game over Ohio State. So they weren't good, but no one knew that coming in. We were three-point favorites. We, we crushed them, and, and that, that feels good and good for the staff, good for the team. You can see they, they enjoy that win, and uh, I think we feel good now. And so we have to now think about – what do we like from that bowl game that translates maybe into the future? We did play a lot of guys that will be playing next year, which is a good thing for us. We didn't lose our whole team like Michigan did. Right. We have almost everyone coming back uh, at a lot of key positions, especially on offense. So I guess let's start with the offense. What what are some of the thoughts you had from the guys that played in that game, and, and how is that going to help us next year? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, the key cog in that is a guy in Austin Appleby who won't be here. I think it was a vintage Austin Appleby performance in some sense. Starts off with two picks, comes back and makes some nice throws later on. We luck into some points in some sense with Iowa turnovers and long plays by us that weren't, you know, attributable to Austin himself. But, you know, I thought, you know, I liked what I saw from our running backs. You know, kind of a bright spot in Mark Thompson there with his, I guess, was it 85-yard screen play, catch, and run? You know, so... Some fun moments from the running backs. You know, Scarlett continued to look good in the second half. Um, yeah, the line played okay. That was, you know, not like 
they weren't like, oh wow, they've just knocked you know Iowa off the ball, but they didn't look bad. Uh, that's kind of where they've been all season. So I don't know what I would really translate for the offense. It's hard to say too much um, about them, other than I'm pleased that they played well rather than playing poorly. I guess so that that's not a lot, but I think that's helpful. What about you? Yeah, for me, it felt like the offense finished just about the way they played the whole season, which was they had a shorter field in certain circumstances. They get a few big plays, which had happened before, and we scored the way we typically scored. It wasn't much different. We were very aggressive play calling for a while there. I thought that the post route that Appleby threw to Fullwood on the first drive was a really good ball. Yeah, and that's just a, that's that's also a fitting way for <laughs> Fullwood and his career is making no attempt a big to catch huge that, receiver. Yeah who was in front of a guy, that's where the quarterback should put that ball, and you make zero effort to get your hands out in front shield. I mean, anything you would normally do there. So that, that's that's kind of classic. But but yeah, they, were, they weren't inspiring. It doesn't really matter. I thought the offensive line looked like they played better at, at points in time uh, against the Iowa front seven that's pretty solid. We ran the ball about how I thought we would. We didn't put up a lot of yards. I mean, really, we kind of played on offense how you thought we would play. Yeah. And like you said, we got a lot of points because the defense – created a lot of turnovers, which had been something we were not doing all season long. In fact, we had three picks in this game. Yeah. Three picks, which is about 20% of our entire season total. We had 13 going into the game. So think about that. We picked up three. Chauncey Gardner picks up two. We were, we were more aggressive at certain spots blitzing, which I don't know if that's Randy Shannon as much as it was Iowa being such a one-dimensional team. Right. You have no fear. But regardless... We did put the ball in the end zone a few more times, which was nice. Yeah. And uh, and all in all, like you said, we scored 30 points, which is a Gator fan. That's if huge. you score 30 points in any way, you're like, oh my gosh, this is great. So yeah, with the offense, I mean, I, I did like how they were pushing the ball down the field, especially early on. I think we realized later that, you know, we kind of found some ways to run the ball more effectively. Some of the plays were running, um, some longer developing plays that allowed us to get out in space. So, uh, you know... Credit to the coaches for you know picking up on that deficiency in Iowa. But also, yeah, I mean, we were aggressive at the beginning, which I like. Not just coming out, we're going to beat Iowa 10-7. to 7. So that was good. And let's move over to the defense because the storyline here is, that you mentioned before, the young players. I mean, the announcers made a lot of this because it's true. We're missing so many guys off this. You know, going back, you know, all the way back to, you know, guys like Marcus May being injured and, you know, stuff like that. So the linebacking core was... You know, included uh, some true freshmen, uh, a guy who's a walk-on, and they played really well. You know, Kylan Johnson injured early, didn't see him the rest of the game. Hope that's not serious, but uh, maybe the highlight, as I from the text I got from you, was uh, our boy Voshan Joseph lighting people up. <laughs> I love that when we we get to have this podcast and we get to talk about guys early on. And we talked about Voshan. Like the first time you saw this guy play, I'm not going to forget it. We're sitting in the swamp. We get that guy out there. And you're like, that that dude is killing people. And yeah. it was a blowout game in the swamp. And he he's blowing people up. And so to watch him contribute to this team and then finally get to play in the bowl game due to injuries. And, I mean, he he is incredibly fun to watch. Like yeah. I find myself just watching him on defense almost on exclusively every play, yeah. on every single play. And he's he's in and around the ball all the time. And he is just laying the wood. And and he made some mistakes, but he really, clearly, I think, is the guy to get really excited about. He's big, he's physical, he's fast, he has good ball instincts, and he just he makes plays that fires up the whole defense. And uh, and that was a lot of fun. Chauncey Gardner at safety is in the yeah. right place a lot. I, we've I've picked on the safeties a lot in the past couple of seasons here in Gainesville, 
And with Chauncey there as a freshman, he has made significantly more plays on balls in the air. Even if they're tip balls, it doesn't matter. He seems to be in the correct position back there. Now, I don't know if he's going to stay at safety. Uh, that's something we'll talk about on the flip side of the, of the cast. But I think the biggest thing here is is Tabor and Wilson had quiet seasons with regards to watch list or awards list interceptions. And that's a testament to how good they are. And Certainly. when you have two guys like that against an Iowa team that can't pass the ball anyway, everyone else can play really free because you never have to worry about helping on the outside receivers. And you can't state that enough. So exciting to see the young guys playing well. It will look very different next year when you do not have two lockdown corners. The entire defense will change its mentality. And that will be something to watch. But all in all, just watching Voshan Joseph in that bowl game was a, was a highlight for me. Yeah, and I thought, you know, especially with the defense, you mentioned this, effort is key. And those guys played with effort, you know, from a goal line stand to, um, you know, having to battle some really stellar Iowa running backs. Now, Iowa ran the ball, but, you know, not enough to really endanger us, I guess, too much. So that's a, that's a slog of a day playing Iowa. Um, they're a physical team. They were limited both by their, you know, not a lot of talent at receiver and their quarterback being hobbled, um, you know, through most of the game. And so you're right, Chauncey um, Gardner, excuse me, I almost called him Chauncey Washington there. Chauncey Gardner looked excellent. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see where he lines up next year, whether that's at corner, nickel, safety. He's a really versatile kid. Uh, he'll be on the field in some form or fashion. And so, yeah, I liked what I saw out of our young defensive players. Um, you know, I don't know that they are going to be the lockdown unit this one was capable of being at times, but I, I'm also not the sky is falling. seems like this, the floor has been raised on this group as we've seen a lot more of these young guys play. So that was encouraging. Uh, and yeah, so offense, who knows defense, maybe feel a little bit better about the next year after the bowl game. And looking into next year right now, Randy Shannon, as of today, which is Thursday, the fifth, a lot of people thought he would be the defensive coordinator by now, but he is not. Do you read anything into that? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think I'll answer the question, do I want him to be our defensive coordinator? Yes. I think that's where I sit right now. Not knowing, of course, how involved he is on game planning. But if his audition was the Outback Bowl, hey, you know, looked great. A lot of injuries, a lot of young guys. Thought we played with aggression where we needed to. Um, he's a guy with a lot of experience on the defensive side of the ball. And as a head coach, seems like a natural fit, knows the program I don't know who they would bring in in that I would be more excited about than Randy Shannon. So I don't know. I guess there there's no rush really. He's already inside the program. You know, I don't know what news cycle they might be waiting on or whatever. There's could be a million reasons why they haven't announced it yet. But I think I would like him to be. Would you like him to be? And are you worried that they're going to do something else or thinking that they're going to do something else? Yeah, I think they might be keeping it open as sort of a, a dangle, a carrot. Uh, there's there's a lot of coaching rumors flying around right now with regards to space on the roster. How do we fill this out? Maybe they're doing it for flexibility. It, it, the right hire here is Randy Shannon. If I am the head coach, I know that for sure. When you've coached with a guy for a year or two, like McElwain has, you know whether he's the right guy. As a fan, we can't really ever 100% know because we don't know. You know, you're not working with him every day, and you can imagine yourself in the in the workplace that you're in. What's it like with your with your colleagues and your coworkers? And you can identify the ones that are really good at what they do. And so McElwain knows this. For us on the outside, yeah, it was, it was bowl game audition. He looked great. He's a great recruiter. All those things point to yes. There's there's nothing that points to a no. 
Mac will want to know that. So I, I assume it's going to be Randy Shannon. I think that that's what people are going to want. Uh, and then I think a few other things will happen. But certainly, I liked the way he called the game against Iowa. I thought that was... I thought that was great. I thought the team played very fast, which means that they understood what the game plan was. And those are all hallmarks of a good coach. And then that's what happened. And, and obviously the linebackers all year long have done a great job. No matter who's been in there, they've really understood the game. So the guy like Randy, I think you want to keep promoting him up. He was head coach before. There's a risk if you took someone else, even if they were really good. A guy like Randy feels a little bit left out. So it almost feels like a de facto thing to do at this point. And that might be the case in their you know, just waiting on the right timing or, yeah, like you said, wanting to create some flexibility on the staff because there's only so many coaches that you can have, like, with that designation on your staff per NCAA rules. So who knows what, what's going on behind the scenes. But I would ex- – my expectation, at least, is that Randy Shannon will be the defensive coordinator or co-defensive coordinator, however you want to label it. You know, those things can get funny when how they give people titles and things like that. Okay, let me stop and – Look, very, very big picture. The Gators finished about what we thought at the beginning of the year. Both of us predicted 9-3 and three with us not being in the title game, SEC title game, which we were. So we finished 9-4 and four technically, but probably you should say 10-4 and because we lost a game against a Presbyterian team that we would have certainly beaten. Let me say, would you consider this season successful? You know, we're past the bowl game here. Was it a success? It, yeah, I'm going to say yes. It's definitely a success. It, it was, and we, we talked a little bit about this earlier. It, it was what we thought it would be record-wise. And hey, two 10-win seasons in a row for McElwain. And, and it's unfortunate this will not count as a 10-win season because you're going to hear about that all the time, right? The number one less mile stat is how many 10-win seasons in a row he had. And McElwain won't have that. Not really fair to him. Should have that. But the season was a success, and the game that made it a success was the LSU game. If you lose the LSU game, this is not a successful season. And coming into that game on that week, we had mentioned how McElwain has got to win a game that he shouldn't technically win. And LSU proved to be a very good football team, including a very good bowl win against Louisville. That was a huge win for us. Without that win, I think I'm sitting here saying it was not a success. With the successes we had, I think also came some learning points. And where we're going to focus in the second half of this podcast is do I think and do you think McElwain is learning from some of the things we learned from this season? But overall, successful season, very frustrating points at times, as I'll point to the Tennessee loss. Some clear, I think, coaching mistakes that may have led to some losses, but we beat almost every single team we were supposed to beat um, convincingly at times, like the Iowa game. And we lost convincingly to the teams that are better than us talent-wise. And so the season was basically what we thought it would be on paper to a certain extent. And so therefore, successful second year for me. I feel positive about where it is, and then I'm going to tell you how I really feel about everything in a nutshell based upon some of the off-the-field things I've been hammering all year, like recruiting and coaching changes. But for right now, this season, I'm going to say success. I agree. I think the program can feel successful about themselves and about where they're at. It's funny because we are... You know, we talked about this a little bit, you know, post-Alabama. And, you know, I it's weird because we talked about the bowl game is meaningless. And here we are sitting as people evaluating the program. And you take that data point into account. I do feel a little bit better because it showed me, you know, the, the, the program, you know, that they're, the younger players are getting better, that they know how to motivate those guys, like you said. So, yeah, I do feel a little bit better going the offseason. It's funny. I don't know if I've just tricked myself into thinking that there. But it does feel successful. Um, defense, obviously a success 
this year, you know, battling a ton of injuries, which were all, I mean, for the most part, pretty fluky. It wasn't like everybody's pulling hamstrings and, you know, has broken arms and, you know, wrists and things that are just going to happen in football. We just had a glut of them at a couple different positions. Offense, a little more, mm, you know, we wanted to see a lot more improvement from that unit than we actually did with the caveat that there's still a big quarterback question. So that kind of balances it for me a little bit where defense, great. Offense, not as much improvement. Overall, though, I do want to mark this as success. Like you said, it, McElwain should this should go down as a 10-win season. We almost should put an asterisk in our media guide, you know, that we lost a game that we would have won, although you can never really say that you would have gone a game. We would have won the game. And coaching, still some ups and downs. Our best guy on our staff, we feel like, Jeff Collins, is leaving. McElwain, can he do the things he needs to? We're going to talk about in the next segment. But I would I would give us a mark of success. I know the Gators were hoping that I would. <laughs> I'll just sitting there waiting on that. But good job, guys. You were successful. Yeah, and I think that comes from the expectations. You know, hearing you walk through that is making me think, are we saying that we're happy we got smashed by Alabama and Florida State? No, but part of the growth pattern is the offense, I think, was unsuccessful. Was unsuccessful given my preseason expectations. There was frustration there. The defense, in a weird way, was wildly successful, even though I thought they could have been elite. I was worried about injuries, and we, we more or less played at a high level with or without our stars in there, and that was a wildly successful point. And the coaching was a mixed bag. So we expected, I think, a B-type season, mm-hmm. and we got a B-type season. Right, and so I that think would it's, be successful. Yeah, We're not the, saying it's like an A-plus where we've achieved all things we want to achieve. Correct. And I think it's important to look at that. When you're looking at a program-building situation, you have to look at what you expected before the year based upon all the resources that were available to you and then what you got. It's it's disingenuous and a, and a poor analytical technique to then look back on it and say, well, we lost to Florida State and we lost to Bama and we did these things. It's unsuccessful. We didn't have the resources yet to do that. Maybe you can argue it could have been a little better, a little closer, but we were not going to have an A season. That was a very unrealistic expectation. And so I think as a coach, all you can do is hit your own ceiling. There were a few pieces I think Macklin would like to have back to have hit that ceiling. I don't think we hit the max potential result for this year, but we hit a B level, a B level in year two, given where we were with the opponents that we had and the schedule that we had was right about where it probably should have been. So like we're saying, we're going to, we're going to say success on this year. I think for me, to tease a little bit in the future, I, I'm probably the most excited I've been at this point right now. Nothing to do with the bowl game. To do with some off-season things I've been harping on, and it seems like the winds of change are upon us. And as I've been saying all along this year, as I've taken feedback and commentary, hey, what's the situation? Hey, why are you worried about this? Or what happens if this changes? I'm someone who believes in the data. And if the data changes and I see things that are being done to which supports, I think, a winning methodology, I immediately will jump onto that that ship. And I think, I think, it seems like McElwain is pointing out some of those same weaknesses we've been seeing on this podcast all year long and trying to address them. That is crucial. We've raised that question many times. So we will see what that looks like in the second half of the pod. All right, let's do a little roundup of the SEC bowl game calendar, the ones that have taken place since we last had an episode a lot of action here in the SEC. The first one, let's get to Virginia Tech 35, Arkansas 24. So Arkansas was up 24 nothing at halftime in this game. Uh-huh. And and as you can correctly predict with any Brett Bielema team, you just have no clue what you're getting from them. And they disappeared, allowing Virginia Tech to have the largest comeback win in their 125-year history, capping what is an amazing season 
for for Fuentes. It's just a great, great season for Vautech. Way exceeding expectations I think their fan base had. And Arkansas is left with another really frustrating season. I mean, just in general. Just what do you get out of that? So brutal loss for Arkansas to give that one up there. Arkansas might be the most confusing team in the country. If you look at their results, I mean, they get blown out by Auburn. They handle a really good Gators team. They put up 30 on Bama. They get crushed by other teams. They get, they're they up. This season might be just like a little microcosm. This game might be a little microcosm of their season where they're dominating and then getting crushed all in the same game. If you're an Arkansas fan, I don't know how you feel about your team moving forward. Uh, Georgia here with a nice win, 31 over TCU, 23. Yeah, TCU, major flop, a preseason top 15 team for a lot of people. Georgia, a lot of hype as well. Flop, not by our ends. I think we thought... Both those teams had a lot of weaknesses, especially Georgia. But Jacob Eason, shaky finish to the year for him. And that's like we've talked about all year long. Playing a true freshman is very, very difficult, no matter how talented you are. It's amazing to me to hear Georgia fans talk about how they're unsure about him now in the future. That's just ridiculous. But good win for the SEC, I suppose. They squeaked out a tight win against TCU. And then those are two teams that were disappointing playing yeah, the bowl game. Two yeah. very flawed teams. You're right. If you're, if you're someone who likes to... Look at bowl records of conferences and make some, you know, bigger opinions. And I think you can sometimes with SEC. I don't know if you can. It's kind of weird, but uh, a win for the SEC. Another win for the SEC. Tennessee thirty-eight, Nebraska twenty-four. Nebraska just had a really free fall end to the season. They got mm-hmm. smacked by Iowa, a top ten team at one point, which is mostly yeah, air. I think mostly but. air, but they did have a nice season for a while. They were playing really well, sure. and something happened. There were there weren't any big injuries that I know of. They just they they just sort of lost the uh, the momentum. And Tennessee, I think you talk about a team that did need a bowl win. I think Tennessee needed yeah. that bowl win. There were a lot of things going sideways for them. It doesn't like we said. It doesn't matter for recruiting. It doesn't matter for those things. But the the fan base needed something. And beating Nebraska, I don't think, is what they wanted for Christmas. But it's something that they can say, okay, you know what, Butch, you get one more year. Let's see what happens. So, like you said, another win for the SEC. Does it mean anything? Not really. Another team in a free fall, Louisville 9, LSU 29. Impressive seemingly win. I mean, Louisville, I don't, they're, if you want to talk about a team, you know, kind of like Nebraska, was I thought maybe the best team in the country were the first six games you know, and then, gosh, they've had some really questionable results the last five games. So, yeah, I think they probably were maybe the best team in the country during that time, and that's why football is a season-long sport. Is, is teams are adjusting to what you do and what you do well. And I think that, as we said early on in the pod, Lamar, Lamar really can't throw. Uh, you know, as much fun as he is and as much action as he has, he's not an accurate passer. And, and teams started to figure out how to how to keep him in the box, how to make him make the throws he didn't want to make. And that was pretty much it. I mean, their offense disappeared. And when you're playing LSU, who, who is superior at the line of scrimmage to an undersized Louisville team, that's a problem. I, I thought LSU finished season on a high note. I thought they looked really good in that bowl game. Uh, I think that Ed Orgeron is not the guy to steer them to winning championships. So I'm happy about that as well. But certainly that ground and pound style they had this year was, was good and they underachieved. But they did finish by beating a, a Louisville team that, like you said, was was riding on fumes. Not a good team at the end of the season, no. but a good win for LSU. Yeah, it was us. good. I mean, you know, no Leonard. Let me just pause here and ask you about this. This is a, a lot of hot air in the media, maybe in my opinion, about players like Leonard Fournette and Christian McCaffrey sitting out their bowl games. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. It was debated at, at my house multiple times over the break. 
I think it makes sense. These are these are exhibition games. You and I have been saying that. I think most coaches approach these games as exhibition games. And any player will tell you that these games are primarily about next year's players. And to me, if I am sitting on an NFL future like Fournette, like McCaffrey, like Jake Butt of Michigan, I'm not going to play the game that's meaningless. I might love my teammates. I don't think it makes me love them any less. I think it says, hey, look, I've come this far in my life. If I don't play this game, I am going to have a payday of X million dollars more than I would if I got injured. And it seems irresponsible to make a decision when there's nothing riding on the line for your team. Nothing at all. There is. It doesn't matter whether Stanford won their bowl game or any or LSU wins. It doesn't matter. But it matters significantly to those guys' as individual futures. And I don't think that's selfish to do that. I think it just makes sense to me. Again, it's an exhibition game. You see this in sports across the world when they're exhibition games. You don't always play your best guys. The game doesn't matter. I can't fault them for just basically acknowledging what's true. I agree 100%. And, you know, the bowl game that Christian McCaffrey sat out, the Sun Bowl, which is notorious for teams showing up the next day hungover. And that's the game you want to be like, oh, he's being selfish, you know, and that that's the game you're saying that he can't skip. Now, and I totally understand why guys want to play too. You know, if you watch that Rose Bowl, and I don't, I mean, I think bowl games are meaningless in terms of like uh, the information that you take from them. They're not meaningless in ter- to the people playing in them, right? I don't want to say that, that we should, or I like to watch them too. They're fun. I, I, you know, I can be competing in anything. I'm going to try to win. I know if I was in a bowl game, I'd be trying to win. And so you watch that Rose Bowl. Those guys were competing really hard. I mean, that's what you want. That's great. But I also don't begrudge those guys sitting out at all, especially guys like McCaffrey and um, Fournette who played a position where snaps are at a premium. You've only got so many in you. They've been dinged up all year. And so I I definitely don't like – I'm not going to criticize them at all for doing that. I'm with you 100%. And, you know, if guys want to play, that's great. If they want to sit out – you know, no harm, no foul, especially if you're going to be a first round pick. Now, if you're a guy who needs to prove a little bit more, you probably should play in the game. But, you know. I think that, is, that, yeah. that wraps it up with what you just said right there. Is the incentive behind these games this is what leads players to playing hard or not playing hard. It's not that they're more virtuous than someone else. Exactly. It, there didn't used to be a lot of these games that didn't matter. This concept of sportsmanship and always playing really hard. I think those are really good values. But most of the time, if you want to go back and look at old school sportsmanship, where these values came from, they came from games that mattered. It wasn't you and your buddies shooting hoops in the backyard where you're playing horse. And that's essentially right. what this is. And, and so the, the games that have the most intensity are the ones where the teams want to win for, for good reason. USC wanted to win that game. They wanted to prove that they were as good as people thought they were. Penn State wanted to prove they should have been the national title game. That's a great bowl game. Florida State Michigan, same style thing. They're going head-to-head against other in recruiting. These are two teams that have talked smack about each other during the year. You better believe they wanted to win that game. A lot of the other bowl games, like we're mentioning, no such incentive. And if you're a player and it doesn't matter, I'm a coach, I'm saying, look, sit out. It's irresponsible for you to play in this game. It's not even healthy or right. If I'm your dad, I'm telling you to sit out. You're not a jerk for doing that. It's just what you should do. There are only 32 first-round picks in the whole world. And if you're one of them, you better sit yourself out in a meaningless bowl game. It's just, just why wouldn't you? For sure. And, you know, just, I mean, one last thing. I would much rather guys sit out than play in the game and, like, half-ass it. Like that, no one wants to see that. If you're not going to give real effort and try to like just keep yourself from getting hurt the whole time, just let the guy behind you play if that's how you feel about it, which is fine. Okay, let's keep moving here. 
Kentucky, 18, Georgia Tech, 33. Great year for Georgia Tech. Huge turnaround. Yeah. Big win season in the year before. They're, they're hard to prepare for. Kentucky, great season for Kentucky. They they were in the throes of, hey, Mark Stoops is going to get fired. And, and they uh, they survived. And they made it. And they lost to a, a good Georgia Tech team. But I think if you're a Kentucky fan, you probably feel pretty decent about your year. Yeah, that was a hard game to predict. We had difficulty handicapping it. But, yeah, I agree with you on both of those things. Auburn 19, Oklahoma 35. That's the story of Auburn's season. Yeah. When they when they lost Sean White, they were terrible. If they didn't have Petway in the game, they were not good. And that's what happened. In the second half, they, they literally can't get first downs anymore against an Oklahoma team that doesn't play defense. So that goes to show you just how bad Auburn's offense is. Disappointing for them to be on the national stage and have that injury. Would have been a much more fun game had that not happened. Yeah, I hated that. I mean, that, you're right. That is the story of their season, as I like to call him, White Sean. You know, productive player when he's healthy. Uh, I don't know that matters much going forward with the guy that they're bringing in, Jared Stidham. But, um, yeah, this is about what I thought, especially if they kind of lost ground, that their defense wouldn't be able to hold on. Uh, So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't think many people thought Auburn's going to win the game, especially without Sean White. Let's talk about two other kind of maybe bigger bowl games before we get to the playoff. Michigan, Florida State. You mentioned the Big Ten getting exposed. I mean, this was a relatively, I don't want to say mediocre, but not a excellent Florida State team. And they handled what some people thought was maybe the best team in the country in Michigan. Yeah, they did handle them for a long time. And then the wheels fell off a little bit. I think Francois got hurt, took a few big shots. Michigan came back. Very fun game to watch. Uh, Florida State winds up getting the win. but Crazy ending. Crazy ending. Great bowl game. Th- those two teams really wanted to win that game. That was a fun bowl game. And Florida State, like we said all along, Full of full of talented players. They're young. They've got some incredible guys in Dalvin Cook. Uh, obviously, on the offensive side of the ball and defensive side of the ball, they've just got an absolute sack machine. Walker. <laughs> who wrecked us in, in, in Walker. And and those two guys can win games by themselves. But, but fun game. Jimbo Fisher's got a really good thing going in Florida State. It, it kills me to admit it. But Florida fans that are out there trying to imagine that Florida State's just going to disappear or that they won't be really good next year are just flat out wrong. Uh, Florida State's here to stay for as long as Jimbo is there, and they're going to continue to recruit and play well. And that was a mark in the sand for Jimbo. He wanted to beat Harbaugh. He wants to be able to tell these guys, uh, you know, hey, look, this is our state. These are our people. These are our players. Get out of here kind of situation. So it made it fun. And like you said, this is a Michigan team that was loaded with veterans. And and if you're a Michigan fan, I don't think you're worried you didn't beat Florida State, but that was the Florida State team you should beat with a loaded Michigan Certainly. team. The bigger narrative here was that the Big Ten really was weak. They finished three and seven in bowl games. Uh, the Big Ten commissioner said famously before the the playoff draw that it's obvious the Big Ten is the best conference. We should have two teams in the playoffs. Blah 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 blah. Well, he's wrong. Yeah, there were some people clamoring for three Big Team Ten teams in the playoff. It very much reminds me as you brought up for 2006 where. People are like, why wouldn't you have a Michigan-Ohio State rematch? They're clearly the best two teams. And, yeah, definitely the conference got exposed up and down as not being head and shoulders above everybody else. You know, the, the conference that did come out looking great is ACC. They had excellent matchups, and then they won those matchups. So good for them. Uh, lastly, maybe the jewel of the bowl season, both figuratively and literally there, uh, Penn State-USC. Yeah, the Rose Bowl continues to be the only bowl that people seem to want to go to, and it delivered a great result, which was which was a fantastic, what a fun game. I mean, what a fun, fun football game. And two redshirt freshman quarterbacks that were just out there bawling, 
back and forth, tons of excitement from James Franklin. Enjoyed watching his his sideline antics over there, um, and you know, right down to the wire in in a wonderful setting in Pasadena. Love the game, and game theory wise, I hated what Penn State did. So you're in a bowl game that again, what does it mean? Meaningless meaning you don't win a national title or lose a national title. Obviously, you want to win the game. You have the ball third and four. And a first down outright wins you the game. It outright wins you the game. The game is over. You have given up at this point in time already 42 points is what it was at this point in time. 42 points. You're probably not going to stop USC. Don't you do something to go for the win? No. What do you do? it's, It's a zone read handoff. It kills me to think you should be using the most creative play you have. You have built your whole season for this moment. Come up with the best play you've ever seen, and the game is over. You can take three knees, and it's over. But I watch coaches do this all the time. I get frustrated when the Gators do it. It killed me when Penn State did it. And not that a team deserves to lose when that happens, but when you go conservative, and USC has nothing to lose, and they feel aggressive, and they score, you can almost guarantee how it's going to end. But really, really fun, fun football game. Penn State flew the mantle well for a team I thought that deserved to be in the playoff, as did USC. It goes back to my eight-team playoff argument And more importantly, it goes back to my argument that you cannot have a committee of so-called experts predicting the future accurately. Not you, not me, not anybody else. You have to let these games be played on the field. I think there is too little difference between teams 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 to start splitting these hairs and definitively saying Ohio State is better than Penn State, is better than USC. Let them play the games. That's what the excitement is. There you go. You're you're running for... College football commissioner, that's your stump speech there. I like it. Yeah, both these teams, are. you're going to see them highly ranked head into the season. They're both really young. Uh, and so, yeah, look for you know them to have a big boost headed into the season. We'll see if they can live up to the hype next year. So speaking of the playoffs, let's do a quick rundown. Washington, Bama. We talked about the David versus Goliath setting. We talked about how good Chris Peterson is at getting his teams ready to play in those kind of games. Felt like, to me, the game went about how you would have expected it to be. Bama continuing to be, I think, very unimpressive on offense. In fact, frustratingly so at times for a team that could win a national championship. And on the flip side of the ball, just unbelievably dominant against a Washington team that I felt like was really game and fought as hard as they could, just didn't have the manpower to go up with Alabama. Yeah, Washington scores early, and you're like, oh, maybe this is a game. But no, not so. And this is what Bama does. They just wait for you to do something stupid. The pick six, I think towards the end of the first half, you know, and watching Bama, it's the same story every week. And I think they realized early on when Hertz almost threw an interception that I think Buda Baker inexplicably dropped. They're like, okay, we're going to rein it back in here again. And, you know, when you have the guys like Bo Scarborough and Jonathan Allen and these monsters, like you can win playing super conservative. And that's what they want to do. And they did it. And this is, the game went just as how I thought. Like they're going to just strangle them. And, you know, Washington's not going to be able to hold up to the pressure. So Lane Kiffin gets removed. Crazy. He now is the only distinction of being a coach who's resigned and then also gotten fired, which is kind of Congratulations, fun. Congratulations, yeah, Lane. I love, I love everything about Lane. If you read his resume backwards, it looks really impressive. I mean, all the great things about him. What, just a quick take on that. What, what, what happened there? You know, I, I got to believe the best in Nick Saban here that he just couldn't handle anymore, and it's better off that he's gone. He probably wasn't handling the – the two roles well, you know, in terms of being an offensive coordinator at Bama and the head coach at FAU. So I think in addition to all his other antics, Saban was like, we're better off without him. And he cut the court. Now that 
that doesn't speak very well of Lane Kiffin, that you would get fired a week before the time. They, they, they couldn't keep it together for just one more week. Yeah, not a good look. Well, think of how crazy that is. Lane Kiffin, all he's done is one every single game practically that he's been an offensive coordinator for. He, he has a higher scoring average than any other Bama team before him. <laughs> and that shows you how much Nick Saban thinks of him. Yeah, and there's a lot of history on this. We, we mentioned this during the Alabama broadcast. But anyway, I find that to be most humorous given Hilarious. that it almost seems impossible to get fired when you're having that much success, even if someone hates you. But it goes beyond that, and there's a lot of talk after halftime that Saban basically told Lane Kiffin to run the ball a million times, and then, of course, that was successful. So make that what you will, but Steve Sarkeesian will be the offensive coordinator, and maybe if he can stay sober, he'll make it to the national championship game. But who knows? It's a crazy situation there in Alabama. The other game, which is supposed to be a much better game, close spread, Ohio State and the fighting Urban Myers versus Clemson and Dabo Sweeney's upstart boys in orange. We got a very different game than a lot of people expected. My pick, my national championship, Clemson, as I thought they were waiting for the right time to peak. They've been waiting all year to turn it on. Seemingly did so. Uh, capping an 8-3 and three ACC Bowl record. I think cementing the ACC as the best conference in football this year, which we had been talking about. More importantly... How satisfying or was it satisfying? Because I know it was for me to watch Ohio State get crushed because I loved every second of it. Maybe that's bad of me, but I just thoroughly <laughs> enjoy watching Ohio State get smashed. Yeah, people were putting up those pictures of Urban Meyer forlornly eating a pizza in the bowels of the stadium again after that one. That, one. that was a tough one for Ohio State. I, I, You know, I, I was so looking forward to this game. I thought it was going to be an excellent game. But we were like, what two narrators are we here? Clemson is a little bit of a fraud. They're Florida State from a couple years ago, or Ohio State. It's too one dimensional. They can't throw the ball. Yeah, and that proved to be the case. Now, this is if you want to uh, pick out, you know, Urban has several flaws, and I'm not someone who, among Gator Nation, has a distaste for him. I, I, I'm thankful for his tenure here. It's that he believes too much in his own infrastructure. And so when Tom Herman left to become the head coach, at Houston, he did what he did last time at Florida, which is inexplicable to me, and he promoted his offensive line coach to offensive coordinator. And you've seen the results that they've been really struggling with a lot of talent. And this is a young team on offense, not great receivers. It's not there are other reasons. But JT Barrett, a guy his you know freshman year, was a Heisman finalist, and he looked like he couldn't do anything out there. And I that I don't believe that he's regressed that much. I think it's the coaching staff. And so that and they're going to make changes. They have to in this offseason. and I think they'll be right back at it next year. Um, but yeah, that was <laughs> that was a brutal result for them, and it just showed that Clemson is a much better place overall on offensive defense than Ohio State is. Yeah, I think the interesting narrative here, and I know I felt this as a Gator fan, is J.T. Barrett announces a couple of days ago he's coming back for his senior season, and my thought with my analyst hat on is, <clears throat> oh no. If I'm an Ohio State fan, I immediately am already sad for next season. And that's just my own narrative. JT Barrett cannot pass the football against a team that is quality. He cannot do it. Urban system does not allow for easy passes, in my opinion, unless you are a freak of an athlete back there. And that's one of the problems with Urban's offenses is really it's difficult to pass in that system unless you've got a superstar playmaker like you mentioned they did not have this year there's no Ezekiel Elliott 
There is no receiver that's mercurial. And, and JT Barrett can't throw very well. He just can't throw very well. He cannot open. That offense requires you to, to take the top off in order for it to work in the flats. And he cannot do it. And I don't think he's going to be able to do it next year or any other year. That's a problem for me with them going into the future. We'll see how Urban handles it. Let's talk about the national title game. Alabama Clemson. Here we are again. Deja vu. Clemson back at it. Dabo Sweeney seems to be attempting to cement himself up here at the top of the coaching regime. Maybe it's just a Sean Watson. Maybe he'll fall off after this, but they're six and a half point underdogs. It seems like after watching the playoffs round one, Clemson skyrocketing with momentum the way they played. Alabama, not an impressive Alabama win. It was a win, but I don't think anybody was saying, wow, what an impressive football team after that one. What are your thoughts on this game specifically? Yeah, I don't know what to think. I, on some level, I don't think that Clemson can play as well offensively as they did last year against Bama. They played great offensively and still lost. So that would lead me to believe that Alabama is going to win again. It's hard to bet against Bama. They're just such a machine. There is some weird stuff going on, obviously, like we talked about with Kiffin. And Clemson's playing great right now, and they are a really talented team on both sides of the ball. I see this being a game that is going to be close like last year. I don't expect there to be as many points scored because I don't think Alabama's capable. I also think they're going to do a better job against Deshaun Watson, who played an almost perfect game um, last year. So I'm I'm thinking in the 20s here for both teams, it's going to be close. And I I guess you can't pick against Alabama until they lose, I guess. Oh, but you can, Alan. But you can. I am picking Clemson, my my pre-playoff pick. I'm sticking with Clemson. And it's not because I hate Alabama. I'm tempted to pick teams because I hate Alabama. But I really just, this, this team continues to frustrate me as a football fan. They play such a horrific offensive style of football. I cannot get behind it. Yes, their defense is fantastic, but their defense has a weakness, and it is pass defense. Now, Clemson has a weakness, and it is throwing interceptions. Yes. So this game is, as you said, very difficult to predict because it really is going to come down to Deshaun Watson will throw interceptions in this game. Will they be the interceptions he threw against Ohio State that didn't cost them because Clemson's defense stepped up, or will they be the ones that cost them? If they cost Clemson, they will not be able to win this game. He's going to have to find a way to throw those picks in situations that don't turn into points for Alabama. I think the whole game hinges on that because Deshaun Watson will move the ball against his Bama defense. Is he going to score 40? No, but he is going to move the ball. They have the right recipe and the right scheme, I believe, to move it on Alabama. Does Alabama have the ability to move it on Clemson? That's a more interesting situation. They have a very, very good front seven. They're extremely aggressive. They blitz a ton. And so how well they handle Alabama's power package will be interesting. They haven't played anybody like Bama all year long. Bama's an entirely different style from the teams they've come up against. That's going to be interesting in and of itself. It's clear that Hertz is not too young for the moment. As poorly as he'll throw the ball sometimes, he does not get rattled. He's not going to give you the game. Uh, so I'm really excited for this matchup because I, I in a weird way, I'm really rooting for Clemson. Uh, I, I want to see them get over the hump. They haven't won in a while. I'm all rooting for Deshaun Watson. I'm rooting for Dabo Sweeney. And I know a lot of Gator fans don't like those guys, but I'm rooting for offense, and maybe that's because I've suffered so many years of terrible Gator offense <laughs> that I want offense to win this national championship, and I am sick of Nick Saban winning. So onward, Clemson. James, let's spend this last segment looking forward. What do we want 
to see from this program in the next few months, changes in terms of recruiting success that would help us feel like the program is the right direction. So if you're Jim McElwain, what do you feel like you need to do in order to be successful going into year three? My first problem that I have is I've got a recruiting problem. I'm unable to recruit elite athletes consistently. I'm not getting enough top 150 guys. I'm not getting enough top 300 guys. I must fix this. I must recognize this. There are two choices. Choice A is you say, I've got a problem here. I need to fix it. Choice B is you say, I think I'm recruiting the world's best underrated and undervalued players, and I'm going to be the one that has a recruiting class beneath my competitors and beats them. I think option B is total crap. And when I hear coaches say that, I'm not happy with it. That's one of the reasons all year long I've been saying we have to recruit better. I feel like Jim McElwain is saying option A is what he's doing. And that's bringing me a lot of excitement for the future. I think he recognizes right now he's not recruiting as a staff at the level he wants to be at. And it seems like he's making the changes necessary to do that. That is really, really important. So what that means is go find coaches that can coach really well but our elite, elite recruiters, those are your targets. That's the kind of guy you need on your staff. It seems like those are the kind of guys we're targeting. That's the number one thing. The second thing I want to see McElwain look at is look at the film of the games you coach this season and really challenge yourself to better understand situational tactics. Because we had several moments where I thought we did the wrong things at the wrong times that were pretty basic strategic thoughts. Those two things, if I'm Jim McElwain, are the things I'm thinking about. I need to improve my game tactics. I need to improve my coaching staff vis-a-vis having elite recruiters. Those are my two main focuses for this offseason. Yeah, I would agree about the recruiting part. I mean, it's such an interesting transition that he made from a place like Colorado State where development was the biggest key. Because you you weren't going to get the elite guys, so you had to take guys who were talented and maybe raw and turn them into players or guys who were marginal and getting the most out of them. And so I understand, and we, you know, the the staff has done a good job of developing guys who weren't, you know, the biggest like recruiting stars, and you know, some of these guys like Voshan Joseph, who we mentioned, P Ryan. There are some guys who have played well at lesser stuff, but to compete at the elite level, I think he needs to upgrade that staff. And so the rumors around the program right now are that we're pursuing a couple of coaches. One is a guy named Mike Loxley, and if you've ever heard of him. You know him because he's he's known as a ace recruiter, one of the best recruiters. His coaching success is a little uneven, when, especially when he was a, bit, a horrible turn as a head coach. But everywhere he's gone, he's been an incredible recruiter. I don't know what that means or how he does that, but that's his reputation. He's currently on Bama staff as an analyst, which we've talked about. So it'd be an upgrade to come to our staff and be a paid like full-time coach. And the other guy is... A, is someone named Mario Cristobal, who's also on Bama staff. Um, and we'd be trying to lure him over and give him some of those similar responsibilities. And, you know, maybe people are just looking to leave Bama right now. I'm not sure. Yeah, Loxley makes sense. He coached at UF before. Like you mentioned, he's an analyst, not a coach now. You can offer him a coaching job. Cristobal is fascinating. He is actually a paid coach on Alabama staff. He's not a special assistant. He is a coach. That is a hard position to get. And by all the rumored accounts, and again, this may never come to pass, he would take a seemingly lateral-ish move to Florida, which would indicate there's a there's a problem that he has working for Nick Saban, which that does not happen often. As much as made about Nick Saban, 
coaches, paid coaches, do not leave Nick Saban unless they're taking a head coaching job or a significant bump up. Both of those guys would be exactly what we just talked about two minutes ago with addressing the recruiting situation. Both of those guys are incredible recruiters. And even the mere fact that we're rumored with them shows me that McElwain understands our weakness. And that is making me feel so much better about McElwain as a field general and what he sees the problems are. And it also means he's not myopic and he's not delusional and he's not giving us the line hey, everything will be all right, trust me. He's saying, we got a problem here. And I, I think that's wonderful. I think that's what you want to see out of your head coach. That's the guy that can that can get it done over mm-hmm. the long run. So and hopefully guy, we land one, of those, one or both. of those guys or both. And Loxley is exactly the type of guy we need on that staff because we have a, a bunch of excellent coaches and some guys who are good recruiters. The two guys that are potentially being replaced here in this process, who we've criticized, Summers and Nord, are both over 60. Not to say that you can't be a good coach, but in the world of college football, if you're not an ace recruiter at those particular coaching positions, there's not a lot to be said for you unless you're just the best coach in the world and they cover you know, they cover up behind you with recruiting. You gotta be extra elite at one of those. If you're not, um, you're gonna not be there for long. So I don't know. Uh if those guys don't come, I don't think it's the end of the world. I think we'll still be moving forward as a program. But it, like you said, it shows you that McElwain is at least trying to address that problem. It's hard to get guys off Bama staff, so it's not like if we don't do it, we messed up. Um, but we'll we'll see what happens. I'm looking for news on that maybe post-championship game. All right, so our recruiting class currently is ranked in the 17-ish range, uh, depending on who you're looking at. And you know we're about a month away from National Signing Day, so a lot of things can change. Right. Let me just bottom line it here. Where does this class need to end up for us to feel good about it? If it stays at 17, is that okay? We only have currently 15 committed prospects, so it's going to be some movement. Or does it need to be inside the top 10? To give a caveat to one of our loyal friends of the program, Tyler Rummery, there are many different websites you can look at for recruiting. I will just be using ESPNs because it's a database that goes back a long way and fine, you can pick Scout, your favorite, whatever one. So certainly we're all over the place with our recruiting right now. On ESPNs, we're 17th. Does, does the difference between 13 and 17 mean a whole lot? Yes, when you look at trends between other coaches, and that's the key. Other elite coaches will rarely trend the wrong way. So year one is essentially not as good as year two. Year two is not as good as year three or opposite of the fact it gets better every year until you wind up capping out in the top five or so. That's what you see the elite coaches do. So for us to have been 12th or 13th last year, let's just say, and to be 17th or 18th or 19th or 20th this year, that would be a regression of trend. Mm-hmm. That is not normal. You can rarely find any coaches who have done that and put themselves in the elite situation. At least in the beginning. Correct. So that is not a typical thing in year three. I, I, I look at that as a serious red flag. So that doesn't mean that the 12th class and the 18th class are so vastly different. It just means it's rare to see that. So for me, we need to be at least where we were last year. If we equal last year, we bring in some really ace recruiters, I say, great. I feel good with the momentum of it. That means we got to be in the low teens right around 10. So I'm going to say in between 8 and and 12 to 13 would be satisfactory for James. If we finish at 17, 18, 20, 
I'm not loving the trend on that, but I would be able to give him a pass if we pull in some ace recruiters and the coaching staff. Because that again tells me, hey, it's a problem. I realize that I can't do this. Let me fix it. If we don't bring anyone in, we finish 18th or 19th. I'm going to be on this podcast, the end of signing day, the next time we come on the air saying, I don't feel good. So for me, that's where I am. How about you? Yeah, I would agree. And we can kind of lose our minds sometimes about these rankings and splicing them as like, well, we finished 13th. I would have really liked 12th. And there's literally no difference. But you're right. The backwards trend doesn't feel good. Uh, And, you know, it's this is still way too early. So if you're listening to this, you're like, we're 17th. Ah," You're like jumping out the window. Don't. Like, there's a good chance... This staff is going to close on some guys. I don't know that it'll be home run. We're not, I, I wouldn't expect us to be in the top five, but I do some expect some form of momentum. And recruiting is a brutal business, a brutal business. There were a ton of rumors that this five-star kid, Alex Leatherwood, was going to flip from Bama to us at the last minute. And then Bama put a ton of pressure on him, and he ended up early enrolling at Bama. Now, that would be a huge get for this staff. And it is just razor thin whether they got him or they didn't. And that's just life in college football recruiting. It is brutal. So everybody's competing as hard as they can and even extra hard <laughs> outside the rules. So you don't want to like say, okay, you don't, you're not competing at the level that I want you to, so you're obviously a failure. But there are some red flags for this staff right now now they could clear that all up by closing really strong and making everybody really happy but right now yeah some possible concerns so we for us i think we would need to see the recruiting class finish a little higher than that currently is ranked uh anything else that you feel like it needs to happen in terms of the offseason moving forward I would like to see McIlwain, and this is not going to happen, but since we get to pretend like if I'm McIlwain, I would like to see him make a much more concerted effort to answer media questions in a more straightforward manner. You can still dislike the media and answer some questions. I would like to see him stop mouthing off about mythical successes that he has and instead say, hey, you know what? Losing to Florida State and Alabama, that junk sucks. I don't like that. That's not successful. That That's not going to happen, but I could want that to happen. But outside of that, no, I think he, he is. I am excited. And hopefully you can hear that in the tone of my voice. I was not excited two months ago. I was unsure. And we kept asking the question, hey, the jury's not out yet. No no, no one on this podcast is saying we don't like McIlwain. The question was, this is a question that's going to get answered. And I think he's answering it. So I feel really good sitting here right now in 2017. Yeah, it's interesting your moment, your mood right here at this moment. Yeah, let that be illustrative of the fact that James really does truly put his money where his mouth is. And that's in the data. And it's not it's not how James emotionally feels. It's the data. I think there's things that need to be done there to help with that. I feel like that's what's going on. I'm feeling good. And I, I don't think there are other things that, that need to get addressed extraordinarily outside of like we talked about. Look at the in-game tactics and really shore up your staff. And the big off-season storyline, and one we won't really know until we show up to play Michigan, is the development of a quarterback. That has to be job number one. I don't think it can be Luke Del Rio unless he makes just vast improvements. It's probably going to have to be Felipe Franks or Kyle Trask or maybe Jake Allen, the true freshman who's coming in. You know, don't want to totally discount him. But if it's not one of those two redshirt freshmen probably and we go into the season just a mess at quarterback in, that's going to stall the momentum of this program and maybe lead to enough noise in the system that Jim McElwain doesn't survive past year four or so, or maybe even year three, depending on how next year goes. It's going to be a tough schedule. 
But that's the big thing. Can they get a guy ready to show up at the beginning of the season and be the leader and the signal caller that the team needs? We won't know. That's all behind the scenes. That's all in private practices and summer workouts and stuff like that. But that's the big storyline, you know, I guess, cloud hang over this team. Very big. And our guess is that Luke Del Rio will transfer since he's graduating from undergrad right now uh, and maybe will be wrong about that. Possibly. Maybe your guess. I don't know if I'm Yeah, it's my guess. We're we're together, yet my opinion is different. That's my guess. If he stays and he wins the job, I am going to be an unhappy analyst on this show in August of next year. Let's look at some people that definitely won't be with the program next year, at least at this point. Early enrollees into the NFL. Play a little game. I'm going to read their name, and you're going to tell me whether you think it was a good decision or a bad decision. And we're going to view good decision or bad decision based solely upon two criteria. A, could they have upped their own future value by staying? So monetarily, would they have gotten paid more in their first contract if they had stayed? It's a good lens to look at. And, and that's going to be the primary one. We're going to assume that for most of these guys, the better their skill set is, at least in the NFL, the more likely it is they'll have success. So Quincy Wilson, um, what do you think? Great decision. Seemingly a first-round pick. You know, and we're going to say that this is everything we're going to say about projections of these guys is what people are thinking about them right now. Nobody's been to the compound, compound, combine. Hopefully, they're not going to any compounds either. Uh, no one's been to the combine. You know, most of the major guys haven't like done the film study. So there's going to be a lot of movement. NFL draft is really unpredictable. But Quincy, seemingly first round pick, smart to go. Nothing else he can do to prove himself in college. No doubt. Smart to go. Jalen Tabor or Tease Tabor. Same position as Wilson. Been expected that this would be his last year all year. Had a great season. Most likely, I think, a first or maybe second round pick at worst. No doubt again. Absolutely. Both those guys right now looking like first round picks. We'll see what they do in the combine. David Sharp. That was a coin flip one. People were not sure what he was going to do. David Sharp, offensive lineman, much maligned by James DiVirgilio on this very podcast. What do you think? I know you're excited to see him go, potentially. Um, clear some space for Martez Ivy to play left tackle, uh, presumably. I am really torn on this because on one hand, offensive tackles are at a premium and people, his size he's roughly six, six, three fifty, who can play left tackle are rare on the planet. So I, I don't know. I feel like he would have done better coming back and improving his play. It was very up and down over the year. But if you're going to get picked in the top three rounds, you know, football is a brutal game. You can't play it forever. I don't know. I If I have to choose, I'm going to say bad decision right now. Yeah, it's seemingly bad decision. No one knows where he's going to get drafted yet. A lot of his value is going to come with what he does at the Combine because on film, he's not that impressive. But the NFL is going to fall in love with what you mentioned, which is that size. If he proves to have quicker feet than what we think at the Combine, he'll shoot up. But right now, looking like a late-round draft pick, Bad decision for me. I, I think he only benefits by staying. He's going to get better, work on his game, work on his feet, put on better tape. Personally, I think it's a great decision because from what I've seen on film all year long, I just don't think he has the quickness to get off the ball. I think Ivy does better there. Maybe I'll be wrong and, and Sharp's going to be you know an all-pro in the NFL next year. But that's where I stand. Bad decision if I'm David Sharp there. I think I maximize my value by waiting. Yeah, and it's not just where you get picked to as to longevity because you can get cut in the NFL if you're not – if you're a disappointment at first. Um, and But you know what? Another relatively disappointing high-profile Gators left tackle, DJ Humphreys, end up in the first round. Hasn't really broken out yet for the Panthers. So 
like I said, these guys tend to shoot up draft boards, so we'll see. Alex Anzalone, my boy, my favorite, crushed me by announcing he was leaving. I thought there was a good chance he was going to stay given the injury. This is maybe the most difficult one if I'm to assess because there's another factor in here, and that's his injury history. He's a guy who's barely played at Florida. And so I don't – maybe he has a short shelf life and he needs to go. Now, he's a guy who's been here for four years, so I think he's graduated. He's got his degree. That's good. If he comes back and has a stellar year, he probably gets picked higher. But maybe he's worried about another injury, knocking his draft stock down even further. I assume that he'll get drafted, probably not highly because he's an injury risk. Uh, I'm going to go good decision, although I would have loved to have him back. Yeah, that one's tricky because of the injuries that he mentioned. And, of course, his broken forearm is not an injury that the NFL cares about. But the other injuries he's had, especially his shoulder injuries, are significant. And that will scare teams. So his his draft stock's already capped. I think if he stays and proves that he can play for a whole season, it's better. But I know what he's thinking. And this is what I what I see. He is, a, I think, an NFL-quality linebacker. And he's thinking, if I just get on a roster, whether I'm an undrafted free agent or not, I will make the roster. Now, to me, can you get more guaranteed money to insure against your own injury risk by waiting another year? Maybe. Is there a risk by doing that because you wait another year? Maybe. He doesn't have a shoulder injury right now. In fact, he's probably the healthiest he's been as he heads into this combine. So trickier one there. I still think if he stays, he probably maximizes his value, but that's hinged upon his injury risk. So it's not as clear cut to me as like building a skill set. I think his skill set is already as about as good as it's going to get. And that's, I think, what he's thinking as well. And he's got a really high ceiling. That's going to be intriguing team, intriguing two teams is that this guy's barely played, and he, but what he's put on tape has been excellent. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Another guy who's a surefire, excellent on tape, excellent specimen, also healthy, is Caleb Brantley. And where do you think his decision lies good or bad decision so technically as we say this he hasn't declared at least as of you know four o'clock here on thursday everyone is assuming he's going to do that and i see him in a lot of first round projections so i'd have to say smart decision by him yeah hasn't declared yet we certainly think he's going to and that's going to be a good decision for him without a doubt if you're in the first round you go it's what you should do a guy who's staying duke dawson good decision bad decision it's a great decision by him especially if he wants to prove that he can play corner, like just straight up outside corner, which I don't know that he can. He might better be served as a hybrid safety kind of nickelback corner, just where we were playing him this year. But he's a guy who I think, you know, out of the shadow of Wilson and Tabor could improve his draft stock significantly. Really only played a ton this past year. So, I think it was a good decision. I think it's going to be good for him. I don't know that he's going to be able to be like a Wilson or Tabor kind of player, but I still think it was a good decision to come back. Yeah, definitely good decision. There are very, very few rosters you can make in the NFL without having played actually corner, as you're calling the outside, or safety at any significant point. Just playing nickelback in college is, is almost a guarantee you will not see the field in the NFL because the nickelbacks in the NFL were cornerbacks in college. So he needs to put on tape that he can play at one of the premier positions if he wants any shot to really make it in the league. I think it's wise for him to stay. I also think it indicates the coaching staff has probably already tipped a cap to here's how I think we're going to use you next year, which is giving him confidence to stay and build that skill set. Okay, then. That's a wrap. That's it for us this season, the Gator Nation Football Podcast. We've loved 
charting this season with you guys, analyzing every game. I know it's been a blast for me and James. Thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you for all the support of the show. Look for us just in early February after National Signing Day. We'll wrap all that up for you. Tell us what we think about how the Gators ended up in recruiting season. And we'll look forward to the spring game and all the stuff that's going to be happening over the summer. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you soon. When you're well-dressed, people say, Nice suit. When you're best dressed, they say, Nice suit. The JCPenney Men's Best Dressed event is happening now. Score 50% off men's select suit separates, sport coats, and dress pants from collection by Michael Strahan, Stafford, and JFJ Farrar. And for big and tall guys, shop Shaquille O'Neal, XLG, and more. Plus, get an extra 25% off with your JCPenney credit card and coupon. JCPenney. Offers valid 912 to 918. Credit offer subject to credit approval. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.